Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, a real Jew. <laughs> and you, <laughs> you sure are. That's what uh, we... Granny Hall calls me, Josh. Yeah, yeah, in case we've never uh, made that clear on previous episodes. That's definitely <laughs> what's going on here. So, uh, in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1977. And in this episode, we're here to talk about the Academy Awards Best Picture winner, which is Annie Hall from A Real Jew, Woody Allen. <laughs> um, I don't know, can I say that? Maybe I should. Yeah, you're, uh, you're, uh, you're. <laughs> Kind of, you're part Jew. Yeah. I'm a half Jew, so maybe I can sort of say it. Also, so. for those who haven't seen the movie, we're referencing a line in the film there. Uh, Woody Allen is dating a Protestant Midwestern woman, and he said, and Diane Keaton, Annie Hall says, you're what Granny Hall would call a real Jew. And it's really funny when she says it. So It is, yeah. It's much funnier in the movie than when we say it in our podcast. Well, I mean, I got some laughs on the first one, Josh, but you're just kind of riding that tidal wave now and, you know. It's time to move well, on. You're, you're the professional comedian, so you know how to get laughs. So Annie Hall was a very popular film. This is a is a sort of an important transitional film in Woody Allen's career. He was very successful prior to this uh, with more kind of broad, silly comedies. And this was his shift into more of a mix of seriousness with his comedy. Um, and it, it turned out very well for him. This movie grossed $38.3 million on a budget of $4 million. And uh, it did, of course, win Best Picture at the Oscars. It was nominated for five total Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Original Screenplay for Woody Allen and Marshall Brickman, Best Director for Woody Allen, Best Actress for Diane Keaton, and Best Actor for Woody Allen. And that's the only award that it did not win at the Oscars, but it won the other four Diane Keaton also won Best Actress at the Golden Globes, uh, and it won four awards at the BAFTAs. So certainly one of the biggest awards and critically acclaimed movies of the year. In a year when, as we've been talking about in multiple episodes, there was a lot of heavy competition for all of those awards. Yeah, and um, as far as I can tell, the last time a true comedy won Best Picture. Yeah, I guess you have to figure out what you consider a comedy. I know if we go by the Golden Globes, which are often really desperate to include anything in the comedy category, I think, uh, you know, Green Book, yeah. which just won. <laughs> and, the, and The Artist, which <laughs> is a lovely film, but I'm not really sure it's comedy, you know. Yeah, neither of those are really comedies. I mean, even if they have comedic moments to them. And I mean, and Annie Hall has dramatic moments to it, certainly. But I, I don't think anyone would dispute that this is, as you say, a true comedy. And that just doesn't really get uh, awards anymore, really. Even in categories designed for comedies, like at the Golden Globes, they give it to shit like Green Book instead, so... Maybe we need to take that on Hollywood, huh? Yeah. You know, you want to we want to we, we definitely support uh diversity, but let's have some diversity in these award winners now uh, in genres. Come on. Bring back some comedies for some awards. I agree, and I think people have brought that up and and especially if you have a category that is specifically designed for comedies, don't just fudge the rules or whatever, so that you can put in movies that aren't comedies, but are considered sort of prestigious or what. Yeah. When I was so. looking up, like, is this the last comedy to win? And like some of the ones on the list of like comedies that won best picture were like driving Miss Daisy. And it's like, yeah. eh, no, we covered it, Josh. It was not a comedy. We did. So. We did. Yeah. I mean, I, it feels like a movie that has one joke in it gets to qualify as a comedy right, right. for some of these awards. So, right. So this is the kind of thing, and maybe we'll talk about this in the legacy, but it's the kind of movie that, that doesn't get awards so much anymore. But it certainly uh, was highly regarded uh, at the time that it was released, not only by the awards, but by the critics as well. Uh, Roger Ebert said, the movie dares to go into this material a little more seriously and cohesively than is usually the case in a Woody Allen film. Annie Hall is a comedy, yes, and there are moments in it as funny as anything Woody has done. 
But the movie represents a growth on Alan's part. From a filmmaker who would do anything for a laugh, whose primary mission seemed to be to get through the next five minutes, Alan has developed in Sleeper, Love and Death, and this film into a much more thoughtful and, is it possible, more mature director. Maybe that's why Annie Hall is called a, quote, nervous romance. Because Alan himself is a little nervous about this frankly nostalgic, romantic, and sentimental material. He throws in a few gags, almost to reassure his old fans that all's well at the laugh works. But he wants to do a lot more this time than just keep us laughing. By looking into some of his own relationships, some of his own patterns, he wants to examine how a personality works. And I have to admit, as much as I I like Woody Allen's work, I haven't seen uh, as many of those sort of early, funnier movies. Um, There's quite a few, in fact, like Love and Death that Ebert mentions there, I haven't seen. But this is, and and so I think we don't appreciate maybe as much how big a shift this was for him because this is sort of the prototype of many, many, many movies that he made after this that we're now familiar with. Yeah, right. You know, I've seen some of them like Bananas and everything. But yeah, I the one thing I wanted to say out of this review is like where he's talking about the gags. I don't think there's anything in there gag for gag's sake. I think that's what's so brilliant about it is like the way he plays with the form all goes to... Um, elevate the story. Yeah, I agree. And the jokes are, I mean, I don't know if I would say they're organic. I mean, some some of the things like the breaking of the fourth wall and, you know, cameos or the way that he talks to random people on the street. I mean, they're obviously gimmicky in a way, but they all do. They serve the story and they're not just like a random pratfall or something like that for the sake of an easy laugh, I don't think. Yeah. And those are some of my favorite parts, like you mentioned, where you know, he just kind of is one breaking into talking to the audience or two, like when he just starts talking to the people on the street in the middle of a scene about what's going on in his life and they all have their answers like, man, that stuff is kinetic and it has a real energy and point of view to it. And like I said, like it, it is all going to further this engine that's pushing the story. I absolutely agree. Uh, Joseph McBride in Variety said... The script by Alan and Marshall Brickman is loosely structured, virtually a two-character running conversation between Alan and Diane Keaton as they meet, fall in love, quarrel, and break up. Meanwhile, he continues his career as a moderately successful TV nightclub comic, and she develops a budding career as a singer. The unhappy ending in this case is an unusually satisfying conclusion. For though the audience comes to love both people, it also comes to respect both of them enough to want them to seek happiness individually. In his idiosyncratic comic terms, what Alan is attempting here is not so much different from what his favorite director, Ingmar Bergman, did in Scenes from a Marriage. This film could be called Scenes from a Relationship. Alan and Keaton go through just about all the emotional changes one could expect from an intelligent contemporary couple. Only in this case, the anguish is masked by the surface bravery of Alan's wisecracking and Keaton's deft retorts. And obviously Bergman is a huge influence on Woody Allen and he would make movies uh, after this that are even more heavily Ingmar Bergman-esque. And I have to admit, as maybe on a previous episode or maybe it was on a Piecing It Together episode. No, it was. We talked about Bergman here because we were talking about that film from 1966 of his. Um, But yeah, we we definitely need to uh, fill that both of us need to go back and, and do some work on Bergman. Yeah, I agree. And I think I've seen so many Woody Allen movies now that if I went back and saw some of those Bergman movies, my thought would probably be, oh, this seems a lot like a Woody Allen movie. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, I, uh, I I know uh, the reviewer here was talking about what the titles could have been, but some of the alternative titles they were playing with were It Had to Be Jew, Anxiety, and Annie and Alvy. So Annie Hall, probably the best title for Probably the best style. There was a review, I think, that or it, it might have been elsewhere in one of these reviews or in one that I didn't pick up where the, the writer complained that the title was bad and that it should have been Annie and Alvy. But I mean, that would have been fine. I Yeah, that would have been fine, although I think the title is good and that the title sort of shows how much this movie revolves around Annie. And even though it's really about Alvy as the main character, it's all about how his life is shaped. By Annie, so yes, that is that is the right the right one hundred percent correct, Josh. Thank you, thank you. What do I win? <laughs> um, 
Finally, Tim Radford in The Guardian said, Life may be a veil of tears, but with Woody Allen around, all is not mourning and weeping. In Annie Hall, Allen again writes, directs, and stars with Diane Keaton in a remarkable recreation of a spent love affair, which is both sad and hysterically funny. There is a great deal of hurt within the film, but the raw edges have been sutured by Allen's bountiful comedy. It has us in stitches. A film which sticks close to the cutting edge of love and darts about daringly trying to make philosophical sense of it is bound to be flawed. This one is because Alan tried to do in 93 minutes what Proust needed 11 volumes for, to resolve life, love, and the passing of both. So I wanted to get some slight criticism in there, although that's overall a very positive review, but just, just to have a, a slightly negative take on one aspect of the movie, although I don't agree with that particular. Well, I think that's, I do think that's a fair criticism if that's what you think is a criticism, but I do agree with the point that he packs like a lot, a lot of stuff into 93 minutes of this entire relationship, the ups and downs. So, but I I agree with you. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I am saying that um, it's kind of amazing how much he's able to pack in from this relationship in that amount of time. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, he does pack a lot in, but I think the idea maybe that's implied there that it should have been longer. Um, I don't agree with that. And reading about some of the behind the scenes stuff, which maybe you'll want to talk about um, the way that they kind of shaped this movie in post-production and how much more that they had that they pared down so that they could focus on the relationship. I think that's obviously the right way to go. And I don't know that I would have wanted to see one of the earlier cuts of this movie that was longer and that had these other aspects to it. Yeah, I would have just to see what that is. But yeah, that was, that was interesting reading about it, how it was uh, originally a murder mystery and there was a romantic subplot and maybe it was supposed to be set in Victorian London and all these different things. And what happened is when they got to the cutting room was uh, the two writers were just like, no, the the... The energy here is uh, is the love story. And uh, you got to kind of commend them for shaping that story. And, you know, uh, when you're talking about a guy who made his career on gags for getting rid of a lot of gag scenes just to push the love story, push the, the right story here, that that was absolutely the right decision. Yeah, I agree. And the idea that maybe uh, there was, it was much more about the life of Alvi with Annie as one aspect of that. I, I don't think that that would have been as strong a movie that it really is. Part of what's so good about it is that it's it's so focused on how his life changes or doesn't change via his relationship to her. And I think the understanding of him as a character comes through his relationship to Annie and the contrast between the two of them. So um, I don't know that I would have wanted to see, you know, 15, 20 minutes more of his childhood in uh, in Brooklyn or whatever, even though that stuff is funny and is good and the amount of it that's in the movie is the right amount. I think certainly, even though Woody Allen has later expressed um, maybe regret that this was how this turned out, I think it was absolutely the right way. Right, right. This wasn't his vision, which was the kind of inside mind of a guy, what it is to be a guy or what Woody Allen thinks is a guy, right? You know, so, but um, I agree with you because some of the strongest stuff might not been a, as strong had they gone that way. Like, I love that we see um, kind of both their past relationships with other people through the lens of each other, you know? It's like yeah. they're looking back together. I think that's so good. That's so important. So, um, they, look, this this is it, man. This is a this is this is the movie we got, and it's a it's a whopper, baby. Yeah, it's. I mean, and I think it's one one example of something that happens a lot, where the creator has to make some compromises that they're not necessarily happy with, and that turns out a movie that is better than what they would have come up with if they were sort of given complete free reign. Um, and then maybe as, as we saw earlier this season with George Lucas, maybe later on when they get free reign, it turns out to not be the best thing. <laughs> so I'm glad that we got, although Lucas movies. pretty much had free reign on star Wars. So. Well, he did, but I mean, he was, he was limited by budget technology and, this, yeah. and budget. Yeah. And when he was a, you know, he certainly 
wanted to go back and tinker with it later. I mean, and luckily we've never seen the quote director's cut of, of Annie Hall. And that's just, I don't think that's something that Woody Allen ever does. I don't think that exists for any of his movies, but he certainly is a big enough figure. And this is a big enough movie that if he at some point in the last 40 plus years had decided, Hey, I'm going to go back and recut Annie Hall. People would have wanted to see it, but I think it would have been much worse. Yeah, I agree with you. Like, and that's not, um, only saying what we're saying about the original cut, not having worked the way they wanted, but also how good this is, you know? So, yeah, it's a, it's a great, it's a great movie. And I, I don't think I would have wanted, they won't, would have just made it worse. <laughs> so, I mean, I assume that you had seen this movie prior to uh, preparing for this. I did. Episode. I did. You know, I like to go on kind of runs of watching a bunch uh, of movies from a single director. And I'm sure there was a time where I was like, oh, I really haven't seen that many Woody Allen movies. And I did, you know, probably some of the early ones and then some of this classic mid-period stuff together. So... Um, I really loved it the first time, and for the most part, I loved it this time, too. Yeah, I also saw it, I don't remember when I, maybe in high school or college, I mean, certainly when I was curious about Woody Allen, and this is one of the, if not if not the most beloved and, and acclaimed Woody Allen movie, you know, certainly within the top three. Um, so I, I definitely would have watched it back then, along with a lot of other classic Woody Allen movies, and and I liked it a lot now, too. I think maybe having seen so many of his films, it's easier to spot certain stuff in this movie that's been done over and over again that doesn't have as much of an impact as it did the first time. But I do think this is still great. And and having more recently just seen recent Woody Allen movies, because those are that's what's new and that's what I would end up watching. And the last time I watched a classic Woody Allen movie was a long time ago. It was kind of refreshing to come back to this and, and remember, oh yeah, he could do this really well at some point. Well, so. also some of those things you're talking about, like, oh, well, he does over and over. He really developed here, you know? Right, exactly. And that's what I'm saying, that I think, you know, I, I had been watching the sort of imitation versions of those, or maybe not imitation, but just the re repetition of that. And coming back here to see the original version was refreshing. So, Dave, were you uh, a Woody Allen uh, fan? Had you seen this one? Yeah, for sure. I, I saw it when I was a kid and I think probably been at least 10 years since the last time I saw it. But this is kind of like when we were talking about Mel Brooks, you know, about that whole rite of passage for young Jewish kid, you know, learning about comedy. It's like when I was a kid, I I think my parents made me watch a whole bunch of Mel Brooks and a whole bunch of Woody Allen. <laughs> but you know? I, I, when you say kid, you, I'm thinking like 13, right? It was after your bar mitzvah. Actually, it may have been pre-bar mitzvah, but not too I not feel too like this is a post-bar mitzvah, you know, <laughs> film. <laughs> yeah, and I think, I mean, not only uh, for, for young Jewish kids, but I think, and maybe this is not so much anymore because his reputation has suffered, but I mean, I think when we were teenagers, Jason, watching Woody Allen movies was sort of a rite of passage for people who are getting into cinema. You know, he's, he's such a sure. big... Thing. And I mean, for me, I think as a teenager, that was a, a big deal discovering. And because he's so prolific, too, it's like, wow, there's this whole huge body of work that you can just delve into. Right. Well, two things about that. You mentioned that one reviewer who was like, it's basically just a conversation between these two. And it's like, oh, so every rom-com that I've grown to love over the years has, you know, been influenced by it. And two, yeah, at some point we were going to have to say it, Josh. Uh, we are talking about this, uh, the film of Woody Allen. We are not talking about any of the the personal stuff we know there is the story of Dylan and her what she says and we know what he says and that's not what this show is about no no it is not and maybe we'll relate a little to those just in terms of his career later in the legacy but absolutely we're talking about movies here and that's what this is uh that's what this is a podcast about so is there any other background on this movie then Jason oh, well, well Josh I'm glad you brought up all that kind of you know, this was a murder mystery and, you know, all that kind of crazy stuff, which I didn't know until we researched it here. Um, there's, you know, Woody Allen's always said no when everyone's always brought up, why don't you make a sequel, which which would be interesting. And then uh, lastly, I mean, it's on every list, you know that. So you can look up any sure. list of AFI greatest this or that. Uh, Siskel had it at number one. Ebert had it at number eight in 77 on their top 10 lists. And uh, 
I think that's about it. Like I just said, WGA, funniest screenplay, AFI, 31st greatest American movie, greatest comedy number four, second greatest rom-com. So, you know, it's uh, it's everywhere and it deserves to be there as a film. It does. And I think this movie is one whose reputation has has remained largely intact, even as Woody Allen has suffered a bit in that department. So we'll come back then in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on Annie Hall. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1977, we're talking about the Academy Awards Best Picture winner, Annie Hall from Woody Allen, which is, I feel like we've we've covered actually quite a few romantic comedies, surprisingly, over the time. And I mean, we just covered The Goodbye Girl and we covered in our 1989 season, When Harry Met Sally. And that one, we talked a lot about how influential it is as maybe the most influential rom-com of all time. But When Harry Met Sally would not exist if not for Annie Hall. Yeah, and it's kind of funny because Annie Hall sings It Had to Be You. You know, and uh, we know in When Harry Met Sally, that song is constantly placed there. Uh, I mean, When when Harry Met Sally is a love letter to Annie Hall, right? And it's a love letter to New York. And Annie Hall's a love letter to New York. Um, What's funny also is the different times that there are love letters to New York. Because New York in 89, maybe more on the rebound. In the 70s, 75 through 77, man, it was a cesspool of garbage and filth and robberies and homicides and the city. I mean, they talk about it in this movie, just how horrible the city is. And it was really like that. And great art came out of that, not surprisingly. So um, I agree. I I consider this the first modern rom-com. Would you agree? Um, I mean, that sounds right. I I would have to look at, at what else was previous, but, but I think that makes sense. And we think of, I guess, I, I think of a certain kind of romantic comedy as very prototypical, like in the 30s and 40s. And and some some reviews, again, maybe not where I quoted, but some reviews uh, compare this to like the Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn comedies of the of the 40s. And that's a certain distinctive kind of romantic comedy yeah. that's different from. So I could see this as the birth of it. Not that there weren't any romantic comedies in the 50s and 60s, but maybe, you know, they were the kinds of things like Rock Hudson and Doris Day movies or something like that. And and this this does establish a template for a certain kind of modern romantic comedy. So that, that makes sense. I think so. And also that kind of like, hey, it's a comedy, but we can really dig deep into um uh, human emotions and the psyche of people and how they relate to one another. Like it's all done really, really well here. Yeah, it is done well. It's a balance that maybe Woody Allen doesn't always succeed at. And I think in his later films, he had more of a tendency to split these things up in a way and make a movie like this movie is a drama and this movie is a comedy. And that heavy stuff was mostly confined to the dramas that didn't have a lot of humor in them. Whereas the movies that were focused on jokes were just about jokes. Um, that's not to say that there aren't other movies, Woody Allen movies like this one, but I think this one balances that really well, better, you know, maybe than than most Woody Allen movies. Um, and it is funny. I mean, I did laugh. I think there's a tendency you watch movies, the older comedies are, I think for me at least, there's a, a likelihood that maybe I'll appreciate and enjoy the movie, but I won't necessarily laugh that much. But I did laugh at this movie. There's some pretty funny moments. I think that's fair. And comedy does change over the years. And um, But yeah, this, this does have a good amount of laughs that really hold up here. All that stuff about both of their professions, I think you could say like if there's a weak point, like you know, kind of sometimes we get some of that stuff about him being a comedian, but it's a little unclear, just like his comic career was, right? Because he was always playing in other forums. And then, you know, kind of uh, Annie Hall uh, wanting to be a singer. That That's also, they both serve story purposes, but I think those are underplayed purposely. And if you wanted to find a criticism of the movie, maybe that could be it. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I kind of wonder, especially because Alvy essentially has the same career that Woody Allen had in, you know, in the earlier part of his career when he was a stand-up comedian and was on TV, that maybe it was just like, this is not really the important aspect of the story, so let's just 
put a placeholder in there almost. So I agree. At least with Alvy, we get a sense of what his career is. But I was wondering the whole time, or at least part of the time, with Annie, like she's an aspiring singer, but what does she actually do to make a living? Doesn't, doesn't really? she just have like a bunch of random jobs? Is that what I kind of picked up there? I guess I never really got that. And then especially she moves out to LA and she's like, oh yeah, I'm just meeting people. And uh, well, cool. it's like, well, how do you make a living? Well, she's at um, that point, she's kind of financed by the Paul Simon character who's producing. Yeah, her, I right? suppose so. And then yeah. you wonder in New York if like her parents are kind of helping her out there because they got a nice house there in Chippewa Falls, Josh. So they do, they do. So, um, but, but I don't think that that's super important. I, I think the things of things like that, if this movie was not working on other levels, you would then notice your mind, your mind wanders, right? And you start to think, what is Annie doing for money? But you're occupied with everything else. And so you don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's super nitpicky. Although, uh, there are some things that, uh, that don't age as well, like when uh, his friend, you know, they call each other Max and Max, right? It's Ron. Is that his, right. his name? Ra- Rob, Rob, I think, played 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 by Tony. Robbins, yeah, who's yeah. good. I like him a lot here, right? And, yeah, uh, they have a fun Ron. little dynamic yeah. between the two. He's of them. talking about a threesome he had, and they're like, they're twins, and they're both sixteen, and it's like, let's maybe move to the next scene. Yeah, you know, to to be on like that is a very that's probably the most like uncomfortable line in the whole movie in terms of how we look at it now. And honestly, I kind of expected there to be more moments like that where you think, oh, this is not something that would fly right now. And there really is not that much of that. Yeah, um, but I mean, and and 16 is is not... 16, 16, right? So it's like, it's a, it's a tough... I don't know where, you, where, you're, where are you going? You just stop that. I'm saying, no, I'm TV. saying like there's, especially at that time period, a lot of artists who were you know, uh, older men and younger women. Right. But 16 is still a tough one to make fly is what I'm saying. You know, that's, that's right. A tough one there. Right. And certainly Woody Allen would become known for that older man, younger woman dynamic. I mean, Diane Keaton is 10 years, 10 years younger than Woody Allen, although they really don't come across that way in this movie. I mean, they, they seem fairly on equal footing. Um, I mean, he talks about in the beginning of the movie about having just turned 40 and maybe there's a sense that she's a little younger than that, but it doesn't really play into their dynamic. I, I mean, it- I get her as younger. Maybe it's because of the adult education and, you know, kind of her trying to find her way where he's so set in his ways, you know, but um, I thought there was an age difference, but, you know, whatever. So. She yeah, wasn't. Well, she wasn't a, sixteen, right? So I mean, no, we got to wait till Manhattan not. to get back to one of those stories. I think. Yeah, so. that is true. So. Um, no, but I thought that that bit where he's where he's constantly encouraging her to like take college classes and read books. That was actually like, it, it, it makes it's it's more effective there because she's not that young, and his the the way that she kind of almost takes offense at it at times. It's like I'm an adult. And you're telling me to go back to school, you know, it's not like she's 18 and he's like, yeah, you should go to college. You know, he's it, it, it speaks to his being sort of condescending to her. Like we're we're contemporaries, we're equals, but I'm telling you that you're not educated enough and that she kind of takes some offense to that. And he is condescending. I mean, that's kind of part of his Woody Allen persona that he has this superiority, this intellectual superiority versus like, you know, everyone. Um, including her, but it makes it tough. It's one thing if he feels intellectually superior to the idiot behind him in line at the movies, but when he comes across that way to the woman that he's trying to have a relationship with, that makes it tough for him and tough for her because they're they're meant to respect each other. Yeah, he really is very, like Woody Allen, like I'm sure from an IQ level is very intelligent, right? Like yeah, the I'm amount sure. of knowledge and the breadth of his... Uh, reading and you know what he knows about and even the way he writes jokes is really really I like I like I uh, you know there's that scene where he goes and plays like the college show at uh, in Wisconsin in her hometown and it's like he's doing jokes about like Freud right or something like that and the crowd is cracking up and I'm like nah I don't know if a college crowd would be cracking up at a joke like that is so so deep into that you know so yeah I mean one of the things about Woody Allen and maybe about Alvi too is that he is very smart, but he's only very smart about an extremely narrow range of things. And as you watch more Woody Allen movies, you get a real sense of what Woody Allen cares about and knows about, like from a cultural and intellectual standpoint. And it's very limited. And and that's fine. He likes what he likes. But I did kind of like 
uh, in this movie already in 1977, his utter contempt for rock music. That, you know, he dates briefly when Annie and Alvy break up and he dates some other women and he's going out with the Rolling Stone journalist played by Shelley Duvall, yeah. who's talking about being at a Bob Dylan concert and being at a Rolling Stones concert. And people that we think of right now as these brilliant cultural icons, certainly on the level of Woody Allen, if, you know, if not more so. And he's like, oh, that, that noise. And I think there's a certain, on the one hand, you want to laugh at Alvy for being so out of touch. But on the other hand, I think there's a, maybe a certain expectation from Woody Allen that some people in the audience will agree with him and think, oh, yeah, that rock music. I mean, just there's plenty of people who would agree with him. There's plenty of people today who just like whatever jazz or classical or any of that stuff and think rock is garbage, you know. So right. I don't think that's I mean, you know, that's. That's who he is. All of his characters are him, right? So, you know. Right, right. I'm not necessarily saying it's bad. I just thought it was entertaining. I think of Woody Allen now in his 80s as being out of touch, and that's not a surprise. But I, I just thought it was sort of amusing to realize how out of touch he's been for his Well, life. but he couldn't have been that out of touch because he wasn't just like he had fans, right? There was like a cult following for Woody Allen, like a mainstream cult following, but a cult following nonetheless, right? So... A lot of people had to really dig what he was saying in his style of comedy. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that people didn't like him. I mean, he was hugely popular at this time, um, including probably with people who liked Bob Dylan and the Rolling Stones. But I just mean how out of touch he is with sort of the broader culture of any moment, whether it's 1977 or 2020. He has this very calcified set of cultural values that he established seemingly when he was 12 and have never changed. I think that's a very specific kind of person who really does exist in the real world, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, there we know there are New Yorkers who will never leave New York. And, you know, oh, um, but I mean, at is at his best, that all played to his strengths, his his crystallized worldview, like his best movies all showcase that. Um, and kind of bring people in who might not see it that way. And I think that's one of the other great points of this is like all the stuff in LA and how unhappy he is and why he is so unhappy there is it really shows like why he loves New York the way he does. Yeah, I think it comes across well in this movie. It's effective here. It was amusing for me to see how established that was already. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing about the movie. And I think the movie, whether this is purposeful or not, to me watching the movie this time, one of the things that I noticed is that Alvy is, I mean, he's the main character, but he doesn't come across that well. And really what this movie to me was about is the way he, his relationship with Annie changes her so much and he is so eager to teach her things and in maybe in this kind of condescending way and encourage her to have this emotional development by going to therapy and all this stuff and she has that development she learns she gains more intellectual pursuits she understands her own internal life better and that leads her to a place where she moves on from the relationship whereas alvi who spent his whole life reading these books and has been in analysis for 15 years never makes any progress at all and i thought that was a fascinating dynamic that that is true. I mean, I mean, he he kind of says that in the beginning, right, where he does those first two jokes up front and he says the second joke that, um, you know, kind of sums up my real my relationships in life is the old line attributed to Groucho Marx. I don't want to be a part of a club of any club that will have me. And that's what you see with all of his dating. Like he's a self-saboteur and won't let himself be happy. Um, one of the other titles that Alan had suggested, and I didn't know this word was Anhedonia. Did you read about that? Which uh, yeah, I think that was the title that that got closest to actually being right. used. Which is like the inability to feel joy is I think no right. matter what's going on. So yeah, no, you're right. You're right on all that stuff. I think, and that's what's interesting. And and because she's growing so much and he's not, you're really showcasing who these two characters are in their own way. And like that one review said, you still want them. You still root for both of them. You do, but I think also like that review says, you root for them to not be together. That if, to me, if you were seeing this movie for the first time and you didn't know anything about it, in the later, you know, in the, in the towards the end of the movie when they're, they've broken up and Alvy makes this trip to LA to try to win her back, you don't want him to succeed, I don't think. 
And he doesn't, and that's a great thing about the movie. And it's also great that we then see the play that Alvy has written where he does succeed, and it makes it very clear that that would have been the wrong outcome. Sure, but let's add on to that, that coda, that last scene when they do reconnect and have a great time talking about old times, and they've both moved on to seeing other people. But there's something still lingering there between them. And I think while the ending is what you say it is, it does leave it open for interpretation of like, hey, a year or two down the road, do these guys get back together again? Because they've done it before. Yeah, I guess. But that wasn't the impression that I got. The impression that I got there was, yeah, they've done it before because they hadn't moved on emotionally. They were stuck. Whereas now they finally have moved on and they're able to have this nice lunch or coffee or whatever together and be friends versus when he went to LA and they had this extremely awkward interaction because he was still trying to, he was still hung up on her. So, um, and I think Alvi is so self-centered that you can believe that he does move on, that he, he is, he's not so much in love with Annie as he is obsessed with the idea of being a guy who's in love. And once he's, decided to dismiss her as a prospect, he can easily actually move on and just be her friend and find some new person to fixate on. Yeah, you know, Josh, I want to talk about something technical in um, that last scene because we see it yeah. throughout the movie and I think it really works so well. And in the case of the last scene, it's a voiceover, but in some of the other scenes, it's a dialogue uh, thing where you have the camera kind of fixated on the environment, whether it's in this case, just cars driving in New York City. Um, and then in the Hamptons, it's kind of like um, like this breezy meadow leading to the ocean. And like, you don't see either of the characters. You're just seeing what they're seeing, right? And, um, and it's long shots with their dialogue and you're just seeing landscape. And that's a really weird technique to be able to pull off that he did pull off really awesomely in this film. Yeah, and we should say, I mean, Woody Allen is not necessarily, he's known first and foremost, I think, for his writing and maybe for the way he directs actors. And he's not necessarily known as this technical wizard, but this movie is a very visually and structurally confident film. He hired Gordon Willis as his cinematographer for the first time, someone who'd worked on like The Godfather and, and not the kind of movies that you would expect uh, Woody Allen to want to emulate. And the cinematography in this movie, the editing in this movie, whether they, you know, took all that extra time in post-production to shape it in the editing, it all works really well. And the kind of metafictional techniques, I love the scene where they're having the, this inane conversation about photography and it shows the subtitles of what they're really thinking and how they're both having these insecurities about what the other one thinks of them and things like that that really get to truths about dating and about relationships that are done not just via dialogue, but via filmmaking in a way that that it requires the image, I think is really impressive. Yeah, and a lot of that stuff we've seen uh, so many times now that it came, but it, sure. but and not just with Woody Allen, but it all came basically from here. And there's so many iconic things like what you're talking about that and what I was talking about where you're seeing their relationships in the past um, through each other's perspectives or with each other, the talking to the people on the street, which comes at a perfect time emotionally for him and then you have you know the little animated sequence which is which is very funny and i don't know it just it's it, like again he's taking a lot of big chances here and they all work which is really tough to pull off there's so many iconic moments the lobster scene the kiss by the bridge you know in the background like this is this it, it just gets it right man it does i mean and i think it also in a way speaks to the way that sometimes movies like that it's not always super calculated. This is a movie where the, the director of the movie ended up with what he not what he initially wanted and maybe didn't realize that it was going to work on that level or that it was going to succeed so so well. So, but I agree. I think really there's almost every element and every every risk that he takes in this movie pays off. And we should say, I mean, Diane Keaton won an Oscar, but the performances are also a big part of that. You want to believe these two people as falling in love and you want to believe them as falling out of love. You want to care about both of them, as we say, and want them both to be happy. And you want to feel like they're both fully realized people. And I think because Woody Allen's writing can be a little solipsistic that Diane Keaton brings 
an extra dimension to that performance to make Annie into this fully realized character and not just a reflection of Alvy. Um, but Woody Allen is really good too. I mean, he always plays the Woody Allen character, but this is probably, you know, it's certainly one of the best examples of that. What am I supposed to do? Uh, read a read a book by a philosopher you've never heard of and then talk to you about it? <laughs> and that is easily the worst impression. I had to at least, I had to at least try, you know, so. <laughs> it, it, so it sort of sounds like, a, like some sort of a gangster version yeah. of Woody Well, Allen. hey man, that, that, that's a fair, that's a fair assessment. Gosh. She's, she's great. Diane Keaton's great in this. And, you know, um, this was, this was her year. She won for this. And I, as I told you, I watched Looking for Mr. Goodbar also which came out in the same year, which is a harrowing and uh, difficult film to watch. But you want to talk about uh, an actor playing two totally different types of characters, man, she's, she, you know, um, you know, certain actors have those years where like, well, did you win the Oscar for that movie or for the year that you had? And who cares? You won it. But you could easily say that she wanted for the combination of these two, like from that year. But she's awesome in this. We know that. So and and right. yeah, he does his best. Uh, like you said, Woody Allen. He does his best Woody Allen work here. But uh, Josh, Christopher Walken. Come on. <laughs> do you, oh no, uh, going to do another. No, impression? I'm not going to do it. But I mean, <laughs> if you want, I'll do it. But no, uh, Josh, like Christopher Walken as Dwayne. Like you know, we, uh, in season one, we covered one of uh, the iconic walk-in uh, kind of uh, small parts in uh, in Pulp Fiction. This this is probably the original like amazing small part uh, where Walken has like one scene and just blows it out of the water. He does, yeah. He plays Annie's brother, who's clearly disturbed in some way, <laughs> and uh, he has this little monologue about uh, wanting to uh, drive his car into oncoming traffic. <laughs> And then, of course, immediately he's driving Annie and Alvy to the airport, and Annie is right. and Alvy is very nervous. Which that scene was cut, and then they put it back in, like right before it was released. But look, no one—that's uh, one of those things that, like, walk it. Like nobody's more perfect for that than walking. Just like he says, it's so straight. Like it's not that he's—he's he's not trying to do any comedy, and he's not trying to be overly serious. He's almost matter of fact about it, and it's just like. Dude, you're 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 the best. You're the best that there is, Christopher Walken. So that was great. And I think I had forgotten that he was in that. And when he showed up in the dinner scene, I was like, oh look, it's Christopher Walken. And then of course he gets a great Christopher Walken moment. Yeah, yeah. But I, I do think all this the small parts, I mean, this is Annie and Alvy's movie. A any of the other characters are really secondary to the story. But but I like Tony Roberts. He's not someone that we're really super familiar with, and he mainly is known for working with Woody Allen. But I thought Alvy and his character had a really fun dynamic, and you can see the contrast between the two of them, but you can also see why they remain friends. Um Carol Kane as his his ex-wife who works in the the Adlai Stevenson campaign. Uh, she was she was very good and and fun in that role. You could see a whole romance between the two of them as being a really good movie. So uh, and even Paul Simon, who we don't know as an actor really at Other all. Other than Saturday um, Night Live, which he's hosted a lot, but um, right. But I mean, he's not he's not really known for that. But I think he he effectively embodies that semi sleazy music producer who. Uh, you can see, however, why he's enticing to Annie as a way to move her career along. Yeah, but I wanted to go back to Carol Kane because we know her so much for like these kind of wacky off the wall characters. And she's great as just a, you know, um, a quote unquote uh, normal love interest. Like I wanted to, I want to see more stuff of her just doing that. Like, I, I mean, I love her wackiness, but she's great as this, you know? She is, and I'm, I would imagine, and I, I'd have to look this up, but I would imagine during the 70s, especially, and maybe in the 80s as well, she probably had more of these kinds of roles, and that as she got older, she got stuck playing the wacky old lady, um, which which she does very well, as you say. I don't even think it's when she got older. It was probably after Taxi, right, where she was Latka's girlfriend and everything. Yeah, but she is very good in this, and uh, I mean, I think one thing that Woody Allen has, he he generally has a very good eye for casting, and he's one of these directors who trusts his actors very much that once he casts them, he doesn't give them a lot of direction. And so he knows instinctively who's going to be right for these parts. And I think he picks that all very well. Here. Yeah. You mentioned he's known for, uh, for like uh, directing his actors. And I was like, well, he's actually known for not directing his actors. Cause like you said, like 
he lets them just go and he, he you know and for being as iconic a writer as he is he lets them if you don't feel like saying that say what you feel like saying so i think it's the trust process is what you're talking about right yeah i mean i guess i meant that people Woody Allen movies are known for their performance. Yeah. I think is what I had meant. And I think that's fair. And uh, two other little cameos, Sigourney Weaver, her first role as one of Woody Allen's dates at the end. And then uh, Jeff Goldblum with the, with the, with the heater one line where he calls his guru and he just says, I forgot my mantra. <laughs> yeah. He's another one like walk in where just his presence and the way he reads a line is going to get a laugh or is going to yeah. really and draw you in. I personally didn't notice until I read it, but you know, um, when there are people watching and they point to the guy and he goes, there's the winner of the Truman Capote lookalike contest. It's really Truman Capote, which is kind of fun. So, Yeah, I, read that. <laughs> I wouldn't have necessarily recognized him. Um, so, yeah. And uh, your, man, your Woody Allen just got like way worse right there. What do you um, want me to do, Josh? Go back to doing it over the top like this? I don't know. I can't do it. <laughs> uh, uh, Josh, uh, I'll fix it for you right now. Annie, though we both live in different <laughs> worlds. We can become one as long as we use our minds together. Hey, hey, hey. Thank you. Thank you, Werner Herzog. Werner Allen. Yeah. What would happen if Werner Herzog and Woody Allen? <laughs> I believe it would go a little something <laughs> like this. All right. Any other uh, aspects of this movie? No, I, like I, highlight? I did think you made a good point, um, which is all the kind of side stuff we see with the families and his childhood. We get just enough of to maximize the comedy, you know? Really good stuff, yeah. and um, and each one that each time they do it, um, they do it in a really unique way where it's like you're seeing the two families how they interact um, with other members of that family, and like three quarters of the screen is Woody Allen's family, and the other quarter is Diane Keaton, uh, Annie Hall's family, and just kind of the overlay of dialogue, which we've talked a lot about this season because of Robert Altman, and then the last cool thing was. Um, when they're when they're both in therapy, Annie Hall and Alvy, um, I love that they actually built a set and put those two therapists' office next to each other, which is a technique we've kind of talked about before. But you're really getting that you know pop of uh, of energy back and forth because of how it's being played. Yeah, that is a fantastic scene. And that was one, again, something that I hadn't necessarily remembered. And when that scene kind of came up, I thought, this is brilliant. This is just so well done. And I think that's a scene almost more than any other where you can see that contrast in their personal development over the course of the relationship. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, there's just a lot of iconic stuff in this, man. There is. And I think we talked about that kind of thing because there's the telephone scene in When Harry Met Sally where the best friends are calling each other and they did a similar kind of thing with split screens right. and maybe even having them all on the set at the same time. And so certainly that would have been influenced by this therapy scene, I would think. You're right, Josh. You're right. Uh, thank you. Um, so should we uh, should we rate this out of five? Uh, I don't know. What uh, what would you think for this one? Five failed romances. Yeah, why not? Out of five failed romances, what do you want? Uh, it gets four and a half for me. Four and a half failed romances. Close. I mean, the first time I saw it, it was probably five. And, you know, I, I still really enjoyed it. Four and a half. Yeah, that's a great rating. I'm going to give it a four out of five, but that's a really good rating for me. And I think this is a movie that is is so influential that sometimes it doesn't have as much of an impact and that happens a lot with classic movies but i just really had fun watching this movie and it was immersive so i'm going to give it a a 4 out of 5 that's a very yeah. uh, a good and rating. also i think it's a real joy the first time you watch it which we both talked about yeah i think maybe the first time it was it was even more of a revelation to me but it was a long time ago so dave do you want to give this one a rating Sure, I'll go with a four as well. Just uh, fantastic. Yeah, good stuff. All right. So we'll come back then and talk about the legacy of Annie Hall. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1977, we've been talking about the best picture winner, Annie Hall from Woody Allen. And as we've kind of indicated, uh, the biggest legacy of this movie maybe is the way it influenced the whole development of modern romantic Every comedies. romantic comedy ever that's come after it. Yeah. And of course, When Harry Met Sally, which we talked about in a whole episode in a previous season, and 
Um, I mean, I think you could say When Harry Met Sally is so influential, but it is because it builds on a lot of what this movie does. Sure. And I mean, one movie that I kept thinking of as I was watching this, and it's certainly not the only one, but the one that came to mind to me a lot was 500 Days of Summer, yeah. which I think does a lot of similar things. But, um, but even something serious like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, you know, which is very much about people entering into a relationship even though they know that being in a relationship maybe is a futile prospect, but we do it anyway because, you know, we need the eggs as, as Woody Allen Yeah, which I love when he says that. That's great too. But I also think, uh, especially before Sunrise, but the entire before trilogy is sure. highly influenced by this. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Woody Allen is such an influential filmmaker that um, it goes beyond the kind of uh, just normal rom-commy stuff that you would think here, right? Like we can look up a number of filmmakers who would say they were influenced by Woody Allen and what he was doing. You know, we know Chris Rock loved him and, you know, there's, you know, not necessarily the best example of a filmmaker there. But what I'm saying <laughs> is his influence goes well beyond what you would think. Um, that's all I'm saying. Yeah, I, of course. I mean, we talked about Noah Baumbach in a, in a previous episode, and obviously he's hugely influenced by Woody Allen and the, the, the way that uh, he depicts New York and tons of filmmakers, and not just this movie, but obviously the whole body of work of Woody Allen. From a romantic comedy perspective, I think some movies, we talked about the balance between Alvy and Annie and how you understand Annie as a character, even though the movie is really about her kind of reflected through Alvy. I think bad romantic comedies often take the surface aspects of that, and we end up getting something like the manic pixie dream girl, yeah. where it's just this quirky, a woman who doesn't have any sort of actual character traits who comes in to influence the male main character's life. And I think that can be sort of like when when movies take the wrong lessons from this or they don't apply them very well because the filmmakers aren't as skilled and that, that's something that maybe comes I think so. And usually, you know, we've talked about the white savior complex on this uh, show. That would be the uh, leading man romantic uh, savior complex, right? Where... You know, uh, this crazy lady's come into my life, but somehow I screwed it up. Now I got to do a grand gesture and fix it. Booba the boops. So, <laughs> yeah, there are way too many movies like that, and this this is not. I mean, this 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 avoids those kinds of things. And the the quote grand gesture in this movie is a failure, and we can see from the moment that it begins that it's the wrong right. Thing and to it's do. not even. I mean, and the grand gesture is underplayed in this movie. You know, in screenwriting, it's called the running to the airport scene because you're running sure. to get the romantic interest. Um, you're trying to catch her most of the time before she gets on the plane. You got to stay. We we're made for each other, right? He she's already gone, and he goes. He's like, what? So you don't want to get married? You know, like that's. You're right. It's a little more Saturday Night Feverish. It's it's what it's becoming. The impression's becoming. John Travolta in Saturday Night yeah, Fever. Yeah, or maybe uh, Vinnie, Vinnie yeah. Barbarino. What, Mr. Cotton, I want to marry you. <laughs> so, um, I, a few other interesting influences, Josh, the Annie Hall look. Before there was a yes. Rachel, there was an Annie Hall look, right? Yes. And, uh, I mean, Diane Keaton is kind of, like, inextricably linked to that Annie Hall look, that her her own personal fashion sense is kind of the same as Annie Hall's fashion sense. And she's she's a style icon. She still is. She still is someone who dresses in this unique way. And you'll see yeah. pictures of her online and people go crazy for how confident she is in this very distinctive sense of style that she yeah. has. Yeah, and then one thing I found interesting was, um, you know, we mentioned Paul Simon. And in the song America by Simon and Garfunkel, they kind of reference people watching. And we talked about that sequence with Annie and... Um, and Alvy people watching, it doesn't seem like people watching was a real thing before that, or at least, really? yeah, like you remember we we did that one movie and like there, you were like, hey, did you know this is kind of where the wingman thing comes from? This seems like I think it was, yeah, that was you who told me that, and I was shocked that that was well. The this movie. is was that? this is what I read about. Like they cited both of these as one of the reasons people watching became maybe it was a thing, but maybe it didn't have like a, a term you know, like a, a defined right. term for it or something. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe it's all bullshit, Josh. I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe it's all bullshit. That's the subtitle of our podcast. So, <laughs> hey, one thing I wanted to tell you, Josh, Chippewa Falls uh, yeah. was actually Englewood, New Jersey, the town I was born in. 
Oh, wow. So, okay. That's not really uh, relevant beyond. No, so. but I'm really glad that we got in a reference to Jason being from New Jersey because <laughs> we can't get through a podcast without that. Yeah. Well, uh, that's important, Josh. Yes. So obviously, as, as, as I kind of mentioned before, this was a big turning point for Woody Allen in terms of going from these broad comedies into something a little more serious. And that led to his ability to make fully serious dramas as well as comedies and to mix that and go back and forth. And I think this is a movie that helped establish him as this major filmmaker in a, in a status that continued for decades and that has only really recently kind of diminished in part because Last of- five the, years, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, and only partially because of the crappy movies that he's been making, um, you know, also uh, in relation to his, uh, as we alluded, the uh, personal uh, scandals in his life. But I mean, so long Woody Allen was this important filmmaking figure where every movie that he made was a huge event. And I think he made tons of great movies over the next several decades, even if he's also made many bad movies. So I don't know if, do you have any favorites uh, in terms of later Woody yeah. movies? Yeah, and we were talking about this because I think you kind of underestimated that he had some really good stuff uh, from 2000 on. I think Matchpoint is probably one of my real favorites. And that's a that's just straight drama right there. You know, that's a great movie. Yeah, Matchpoint is great. Um, Matchpoint from 15 years ago at this point, though. So I think because In the, because in the so 2000s. Perfect. Like I said, yeah, that that is that is true. But but, but before um, you answer, because I want to hear both your answers. But like that, we we keep brushing over the fact like it's not easy. It, he is that prolific. That means he's like writing and making a movie every year of his life. It feels like it's kind of an amazing run. Right. No, it is amazing, and I think that's why it's easier to kind of look past the bad movies that he's made because there's so many good movies in right. between. And even if you took all the bad movies out and he was only making one good movie every four or five years, I mean, that's a track record that any filmmaker would be yeah. lucky to have. Man. So, um, yeah, I mean, I have tons of Woody Allen favorites. I think Ma Manhattan has always been my personal yeah, favorite. Yeah, we overall. all like Manhattan. So. Although I haven't seen it in a long time. Um, I mean, I remember like as, as a fairly like, 12 or 13 year old or something watching like Hannah and her sisters, which is fantastic. I really like radio days, which is sort of a more dramatic expansion of the uh, family flashback stuff in this movie. Um, Sweet and Lowdown, I think is sort of underrated now with Sean Penn. Well, this is just a, unfair, Josh, because you asked me if I had one favorite in the later, I didn't, I said <laughs> the later I period. Any... And then you're like, here, let me, let me list off, let me rack off 15 good ones he did. You skipped said, uh, you, Broadway you, Danny Rose, which is a good movie also. Yeah, I'm, yeah I did skip that. <laughs> and uh, I, I mean, from, the, from the, the sort of quote later period, even though this is now more than 10 years old, I, I do, I really like Vicky Cristina Barcelona. I agree. That's, that's probably my favorite from that period. So I did say, do you have any favorites later, i.e. later than Annie Hall? So if you want to name some more. I thought you meant later as in like the last and what we consider late Woody Allen, which I'm saying is like 2000 on. But no, I, I agree. And Vicky Cristina Barcelona is great. And we know his biggest hit, although Annie Hall is his biggest hit if you consider inflation, but his biggest hit monetarily was uh, from 2011, I think, which is Midnight. Yeah, that was a massive box office hit, which is weird. And I think that movie is fine. It's kind of sweet. It's okay. It's fairly forgettable, like a lot of later Woody Allen movies. But for some reason, that just really reached a mainstream audience. I think later Woody Allen movies tend to simply reach people who want to see Woody Allen movies for the most part, especially now. But for whatever reason, Midnight in Paris really got to that really broad audience. And that was uh, going to be my pick if you asked me. Yeah. So. Oh, well, did we ask you, Dave? <laughs> we were going to, I was going to ask you, Dave. No, you Josh didn't. wasn't, yeah. but I no. was personally. <laughs> but, um, you know, Josh, at the time of this recording, we've just seen the preview of his newest movie coming out. Rifkin's Festival, which looks um, like a Woody Allen movie. Yeah, exactly. It looks like uh, one of these later Woody Allen movies where he just kind of mixes up his basic Woody Allen stuff in a slightly new combination and throws in whatever actors he could find. Um, of course, because of his scandals, he's, he's definitely on the outs, at least in the US. And his movie prior to Rifkin's Festival, A Rainy Day in New York, was never released here in the US. And I kind of have to wonder if Rifkin's Festival will be. But in Europe, he still has this 
has a following and has um, people willing to back his movies, to finance them, to distribute them. So, I mean, I assume he'll probably continue. I mean, he's 84 years old. And of course, the whole state of filmmaking right now is a bit uh, chaotic. And I kind of wonder how well Woody Allen is going to do as someone who is very resistant to ever doing anything different, how well he could handle a movie production during the COVID pandemic. But I, I have every reason to think he'll make more movies. Josh, what was that documentary about him playing the Django Reinhardt music or all the blues music? Is it called Wild Wild Man Blues? Yeah, that, the one about his tour. Yeah, yeah. interesting piece. That was, I haven't seen that. So, um, hey, what about Diane Keaton? Let's talk a little about Diane Keaton. You know, because she was as big as a star as there was, and it's like right now you kind of want like, come on, Diane Keaton, give us a Grace and Frankie or something, right? Well, she did have. I mean, I think it's not a good movie, but she had Book Club, which was just a couple years ago. That's like Grace and Frankie, kind of this showcase for older female actors in this gentle comedy, which was a huge hit. So really? she's still doing that kind of stuff. I didn't know that was a huge hit. How about that? It was, it, it was a huge hit. Yes, it's not, it's not good, but it made a lot of money. Well, that's exciting, Josh. <laughs> I guess, um, but I mean, I agree. Diane Keaton is great. And as you pointed out, she has tons of range. She's great in these comedies that she made a number of movies with Woody Allen, but also dramatic stuff, the Godfather movies and, and, Looking for Mr. Goodbar, as you said, she was nominated for three more Oscars after this uh, for Reds with Warren Beatty, uh, which I haven't seen, and for Marvin's Room, which is kind of a forgotten movie. And the only thing I ever remember that is is some SNL sketch with Norm MacDonald as uh, David Letterman and Alec Baldwin as uh, Robert De Niro, where the only joke is he just keeps repeating uh, to, to see Marvin's Room which I think is the movie this was, that was about to come out. This was fun that you uh, remember that, Josh. I, it's just, it always sticks in my mind and I can't do impressions, but if I would ever do a, a, a De Niro impression, my go-to thing would be, see Marvin's room. <laughs> you know, that, Bravo. I just remember that. Dave, the podcast is now canceled. Josh has done it. <laughs> that was it. That was uh, it. And, and Diane Keaton also nominated for an Oscar for Something's Gotta Give, the um, uh, Nancy Myers. It seems movie, like is, the last, like, big maybe acclaimed movie she was in i'm looking at her you know kind of filmography right now and like there's a lot of stuff but not really a lot of stuff where you're like oh man i gotta watch that there no but she does work steadily and again stuff like book club i think she's just you know she's she's quirky it was like we talked about with her fashion sense and she posts like instagram stories where she does wacky stuff in her kitchen or whatever yeah. she definitely seems like she's living a pretty good life yeah i, I um, like she's the type of actress like i would like if you're like hey could could uh you direct something with diane keaton like that would be amazing and like you said like she is a style icon to this day yes um i did want to mention a couple of sort of uh underappreciated contributors to this uh marshall brickman who co-wrote this movie with, with, with Woody Allen. And we always think of Woody Allen as this auteur, as, as a writer, but he actually, in you know early in his career, co-wrote several movies with Marshall Brickman, and they did reunite to co-write uh, Manhattan Murder Mystery in 1993. And Brickman went on to do some of his own uh, films that he wrote and directed. But the biggest thing he probably did later was that he was the co-writer of Jersey Boys, the incredibly successful stage musical. Yeah. So there's another yeah. New Jersey reference. Yeah, the other him. movies I had written down for him were For the Boys, which was the Bette Midler movie, and Intersection, which I remember was a, a big movie at the time. I don't remember that one. Maybe but, I made it um, up, guys. No, it could be. But I do think it's interesting they reunited for Manhattan Murder Mystery, not having researched this and knowing that originally there was a murder mystery plot in this film. Right. And I think that's also a reunion with Diane Keaton after she hadn't been working with Woody Allen for a while. So it was sort of an Annie Hall. And I actually, that's a, that's one of the few Woody Allen movies I've not seen. I don't know if you've seen that one. I haven't, but um, let's all let's all get together and watch it. Yeah, someday. Uh, and Tony Roberts who is also known mainly for working with Woody Allen, uh, is still a working character actor. He does a lot of stage work and he's been on many episodes of Law and & Order. And I think he's kind of an underrated presence. I liked him. Uh, one fun fact that I would not have put together had I not uh, read it myself uh, was that um, we mentioned a lot of these supporting actors. Think of uh, how many of them went on to iconic roles in iconic horror movies. Sigourney Weaver, Alien, 
uh, Shelley Duvall, The Shining, Christopher Walken, The Dead Zone, Carol Kane and Colin Dewhurst in When a Stranger Calls and Jeff Goldblum in The Fly. That's kind of interesting, you know? Yeah. Was that like the 18th thing listed on the IMDb trivia page? Josh, you do your research your way. I'll do my <laughs> research. <your way. laughs> All right. Any any other fascinating? Uh, this is the second shortest best picture ever. Yeah. Besides Marty, 1955. And then uh, uh, one, you might find this interesting, Josh. You know, there was a sequence cut or not filmed where Annie and Alvy were visiting hell that they he kind of rewrote and did in Deconstructing Harry, which I remember liking as a Woody Allen movie. Yeah, I think that was okay, but I definitely think it's better that that was not in this movie. So yeah, I agree. We said he made the right choices in this movie, Josh. He did. He really did. So that is Annie Hall, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. We're on social media. Woody Allen is not. Uh, Thankfully. <laughs> year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on uh, Facebook and Twitter. Jay, on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. And go for Jason.com. Uh, having a... Uh, not not good results in the website to yeah uh i'm at josh bell hates everything.com which i think i might post something there. yes <laughs> is it your <laughs> robert excited. de niro impression because i'm all in no definitely not uh josh bell hates everything <laughs> on facebook and at signal bleed on twitter and you can listen to our producer david rosen's awesome podcast piecing it together you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts or at piecingpod.com and follow us on social media at piecingpod. And also check out the Patreon by David Rosen for some cool bonus content from us here at Awesome Movie Year, as well as piecing it together and uh, Dave's other podcast, All Rice, No Beans, and some new music, I think, from, from old David Rosen as well. That's right. Yep. New album. So please support us on Patreon. I think we've promised to do all sorts of dumb things yeah, I don't in, remember in the recent last episodes. <laughs> if anyone, if anyone signs up on Patreon, uh, so if you want us after to hearing, do, do pushups, that was a thing. But today I think if you support us, you can pick a, an iconic Robert De Niro monologue for Josh to kind of dramatize and he will do it oh on the Patreon. God. No, no, I'm creating no. fake Patreon accounts right this second. So nobody, I can sign up. Nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> What's coming up in our next episode, James? Well, Josh, I'm not going to tell you because it's doo -doo -doo, little Davy's pick. Tell him, Dave, what do you got? <laughs> well, I picked, this has been a very comedy-heavy season. I went with Kentucky Fried Movie. Yes, you did. So <laughs> tune in next time for the Kentucky Fried Movie. Thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. Hey, I love you guys. <laughs>